This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for downloading the latest Rear Vision podcast. If you enjoy it, please share it and rate us. You can also email us or leave a comment on the website if you want. It's not unusual for sports stars to become politicians, but how often does a legendary cricketer, an international playboy to boot, become leader of a large conservative Islamic state? The former cricketer Imran Khan will become Pakistan's next Prime Minister. After decades on the political fringe, Imran Khan's supporters are ecstatic. The former cricketer claimed victory, promising fairness in government and an end to corruption. Accountability will start with me, then my ministers, and then we will work our way down. I want all of Pakistan to be united in this moment. Pakistan is a country of over 200 million people. Long plagued by terrorism, corruption and religious extremism, it's just elected a former cricket hero as Prime Minister. Rear Vision looks at what lies ahead for Imran Khan and how he got the top job in the first place. Like the rest of Pakistan's political elite, he comes from a privileged background. BJ Sadiq is the author of Let There Be Justice, The Political Journey of Imran Khan. Imran was born in Lahore. Uh, that was in 1952. He was born into a family of bureaucrats, a family of soldiers, a family where cricket was held in high esteem. So he, he was already born into a family where two of his older cousins were already playing for Pakistan, had all, were already playing competitive cricket in Pakistan and later went to Oxford and captained Oxford. So I'm talking about his older cousin, Javed Barki, who captained Oxford and then later captained Pakistan team. Then came Majid Khan, who was also a great batsman. He captained Cambridge University and then later captained Pakistan team. So these two cousins became his role models because there's, there's an age gap of around 10 to 15 years between Imran and these two cousins of his. Cricket was always an indispensable part of his life. And uh, he made his debut, test debut in 1971. That was against England at Birmingham. And uh, it was an awful debut where his full tosses just soared over the wicketkeeper's head and they crashed into the boundary. And uh, he was soon chucked out, humiliated by the, the team management, by the selectors, was chucked out of the side, went to Oxford University where he revived his game. He worked on his cricket and returned with a bang in 1975. And from that position, he evolved as a cricketer and rose to become one of cricket's greatest all-rounders, second only to Sagafil Sobers. Well, Imran Khan really revolutionised cricket in Pakistan. Gideon Haig is a well-known cricket writer. He was the supreme virtuoso all-rounder, an accomplished middle-order batsman and a magnificent leonine fast bowler, master of all the arts of swing bowling and an imposing physical presence on the cricket field who, when he inherited the captaincy of Pakistan in the 1980s, became a a uniting figure. Pakistan teams in the past have always been sort of full of mercurial individuals but haven't always pulled in the same direction. Imran, by his intellect and his bearing and his personal charisma, made Pakistan into a formidable unit and a, and a formidable combination of, uh, of disparate personalities. There's lots of different sort of ethnicities and geographic origins and 
languages and, and backgrounds in the Pakistan cricket. And somehow Imran seemed to be able to float above them all. He had this natural kind of authority that came from education, from, from family background, from personal ability and from his own individual magnetism that, uh, that drew cricketers naturally towards him and also won the undying allegiance of, uh, of, of Pakistan cricket fans. It's a wonderfully celebrated period in, uh, in, in Pakistan's cricket history leading up to the victory in the 1992 World Cup where Pakistan beat England at, uh, at the MCG and it was uh, Pakistan cricket finally fulfilling all its decades of potential at once. Pakistan won the World Cup for the first time last night, defeating a gallant England by 22 runs for nearly 90,000 fans at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. The win was a personal triumph for Pakistan's captain Imran Khan, who kept his faith in a youthful team through the lead-up matches and who top-scored last night when the pressure was on. I have always been clear in one-day cricket that you have to take wickets to stop the scoring rate. I have always believed in uh, attacking in one-day cricket. Was he loved by his team? He wasn't loved, but he was reverenced by his team. And certainly young players coming into the side automatically fell under his influence. He exerted a, um, an influence on players' lives outside the game as well. He took an intense pastoral interest. Imran was extremely solicitous and caring and thoughtful in the way in which he addressed the whole individual in his side rather than simply the cricketer. Was there any indication during his years as a cricketer that he had any interest in politics? He certainly had interests outside the, the cricket field and one of his consuming passions was the development of a cancer hospital in honour of his, of his mother who died prematurely of, of cancer. And it was in fact kind of a, a motif of the 1992 World Cup campaign that Imran was doing it as much to publicise his, uh, his role as a philanthropist as he was to lead Pakistan to victory. He was absolutely obsessed with this hospital and it was perhaps the first of his kind of great works when the hospital was opened in Lahore in 1994. In 1995, Imran Khan married a young, glamorous and socially well-connected Brit, Jemima Goldsmith. The couple arrived in time-honoured fashion, first the groom in traditional Pakistani dress and then, a nail-biting half an hour later, in almost regal style, the bride, in a modest but very Western designer outfit. In what was described as a simple ceremony behind firmly closed curtains, the couple said their vows under English law. Last month, they had an Islamic marriage in Paris. As they emerged, the couple denied well-wishers a kiss for the cameras, and there was just the merest hint of broken hearts for the man who was Pakistan's most eligible bachelor. The pair settled in Pakistan, where the following year, Imran Khan established his political party, the TPI, or Pakistan Movement for Justice. This is the period, the 10-year period between the late 1980s and the late 1990s, where Pakistan was marred by colossal levels of corruption committed mainly by two political dynasties, I would call them, the Pakistan People's Party under the leadership of Benazir Bhutto and the PMLN Party under the leadership of Nawaz Sharif. And in these 10 years, each of these two political parties fell short of their full tenure and were disqualified. There was widespread macroeconomic instability in the country. Foreign reserves were depleting. Uh, there was a balance of payments crisis. There were rampant power outages. 
there was ethnic violence, political victimization of opponents, and there was also rapid radicalization, Islamic radicalization in some parts of the country, and corruption was eating the country like cancer. I'll just give you a quick example of despair, the kind of despair Pakistan was plagued with in those 10 years. There was a transport worker in, in, in the province of Sindh, which is Pakistan's second largest province by population. And that transport worker hadn't been paid his salary for two years. And he had a large family to support. And he decided to soak himself in petrol and, and set himself alight. So, so that was the level of despair. And against this backdrop, in this climate, Imran made his debut. He realized that the traditional political system of the country was not delivering and the people of the country were not satisfied, and his manifesto was strewn with pretty ideas. So he, he talked about uh, things that previously political leaders did not talk about. He talked about free health care, he talked about free education, he talked about corruption-free governance, he talked about strengthening state institutions, the need for ministers to live a humble life, because until then, the political elite of Pakistan cocooned with measureless wealth, just literally threw their weight on every state institution, and they had a narcissist attitude towards the common people. So Imran, basically, his ideas were revolutionary and struck a chord with the urban youth, mainly, and later on with the semi-urban youth, and it gradually seeped down to the rural population as well. And as, as years went by, and as Pakistan's electoral demography started to evolve, Imran's popularity grew. He set up his political party back in 1996. Professor Catherine Aidany is the director of the University of Nottingham Asia Institute. And he set it up as being a movement for justice. And it was very much set up to really provide an alternative to the Bhutos and to the Sharifs who dominated the Pakistan People Party, the PPP, and the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, which is, of course, Nawaz Sharif's party. And he put himself out there as being an alternative to those political parties. And he said that these are dominated by feudal landholders or people who are industrialists. And he really set himself up to be, well, I'm going to represent the interests of the people of Pakistan who aren't represented by these elites. And he wasn't very successful at first. I mean, in 1999, only three years after he set up the party, there was a military coup. And therefore, there wasn't a lot of political activity that was happening, certainly not at um, the elections level. But gradually, you've seen him get more and more support. So he boycotted or his party boycotted the elections back in 2008. But they participated in 2013. And they did pretty well. And they took control of the province of Khyber Pakhtunwa. But despite his rhetoric that he was going to become the next prime minister and his parties was going to be the largest party in parliament, he didn't succeed at that time. And nobody was really expecting him to. You know, this was a new party. They hadn't really had a lot of success previously. So actually, in 2013, they did extremely well for a new party. In 1996, when he formed PTI, there was mixed reaction to it. Professor Samina Yasmin is a regular commentator on Pakistani politics. At one level, it was seen as a group that had been supported by former military officials who had been retired and who still wanted someone who could present their point of view. The former director general of 
Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, Hamid Gul, was very supportive of him. Then there were a few other people who had actually been involved in helping him draft the manifesto for the party. There are others who have had a mixed opinion about him, but I think the party started initially because of retired military official support. When I look back, I think there was obviously a commitment on his part to do something for Pakistan, plus the fact that he managed to win the World Cup for cricket that identified him as a possible candidate in the eyes of these military retired officials. And if he wasn't really in the game, he could have said no, because there are a lot of other cricketers, other sort of renowned sportsmen, who haven't really taken on this role. So it's a combination of the military support and also his own vision for Pakistan. At the partition of India in 1947, the modern state of Pakistan found itself with only 17% of the subcontinent's wealth, but 33% of its military. For this and other reasons, the military has had enormous political influence. Pakistan was a really weak state. It was created as a successor state from India, from the British Empire. And that meant that the politicians also came to rely on the army quite a lot and it achieved a greater prominence in national life than it did in India, for example. After the secession of Bangladesh in the 1970s, you've had an opportunity for the politicians to reassert themselves and take back the power. But again, you see problems with centralization. And again, you see the army coming to the fore. When you come to the 1980s and 1990s, therefore, the army is very, very well established in Pakistan. It's involved in the economy. It's involved in businesses. So it runs things like beauty salons. It runs banks, for example. And it very much feels that it is the institution that is there to save Pakistan. And it has its very, very definite views on where it sees Pakistan going vis-a-vis India, for example. But for approximately half of its history, the military has been in direct control of Pakistan under either martial law or some kind of presidential decree where the president is an army man. Having said that, though, politicians have become increasingly important in Pakistan in recent years. And it would be a lie to say that elections don't matter in Pakistan or that the electorate don't have preferences, which they do express on on election day. Military is hugely significant in Pakistan's politics. And we really have to go back to the traditions of the British Indian military. For British Indian military, their task was to be the custodians of law and order because they were serving the British rulers. When India and Pakistan were created, even though the Indian military went a different way, in Pakistan, the military continued to view its role as the custodian of law and order. That was made possible partly because the politicians who ended up running Pakistan after Muhammad Ali Jinnah passed away. And even Liaquat Ali Khan, the prime minister, was assassinated in 1951. The leaders who ran Pakistan, they were basically very weak. So it gave the military, and at that time even the bureaucracy, an edge over the politicians. The military with the threat of India, it's undermining Pakistan's existence, 
the military was able to gain a lot of support from within Pakistan, and especially when Pakistan signed the military alliance with the Americans, the military became recipient of assistance from the U.S. The result has been that the military as an institution in Pakistan has always been stronger vis-a-vis the politicians and now I would say even the bureaucracy. A military has had a greater share of Pakistan's resources and it's been always explained in terms of the Indian threat. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National, RN. Politics in Pakistan has been dominated by two parties and two families, the Bhutos and the Sharifs. In a seismic political shift, the former cricketing great Imran Khan has gathered enough votes to become Prime Minister. He ran unsuccessfully for a seat in the National Parliament in 1997. Although he succeeded in the 2002 elections, Imran Khan's political career has been turbulent, involving protest and arrest. However, support has continued to grow, and in the 2013 elections, his party, the PTI, emerged as the second largest, in opposition to the ruling Pakistan Muslim League, led by Nawaz Sharif. The reason why after 1997's really sort of lacklustre result, the reason why Imran Khan continued on his path is that one, I would say he does show that he has commitment. But the second is that he started targeting his message for the youth. It could be that Pakistani middle-aged people started getting a bit more set in their ways. You know, it's either Pakistan People's Party or Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz Sharif group that they would align themselves with. But what Imran Khan did was that he started communicating the messages that are in the society about corruption, lack of accountability, absence of merit. And he started using that as part of his message to the people that that's what's wrong with Pakistan and that's what Pakistan needs to focus on. And because his message was so targeted to the youth, who, as I'd said, are taken by cricket a lot, what we see is that gradually it's the young, urban and also rural people who really look at him as a cricketer who started looking at him as the possible solution. BJ Sadiq says that at the same time as Imran Khan was building up a head of steam, the two major parties had been leaking political capital. At the time of the election, Nawaz Sharif, the former Prime Minister and leader of the PMLN, was actually in jail, having been recently sentenced to 10 years for corruption. Let's start with PMLN. The PMLN leadership was implicated in the Panama leaks that came out in in early 2016. So it was not the, the Pakistani armed forces who influenced a global leak. Then later on, Imran took the fight and filed a petition with the Supreme Court of Pakistan and had the, the prime minister disqualified. A head of a political party getting disqualified on charges of corruption, that's a huge blow because Nawaz Sharif was basically the face of that political party. If you talk about the, the Pakistan People's Party, The People's Party lost its charisma after the death of Benazir Bhutto. That was in December 2007. And the party was virtually awarded on a will to Benazir's son and Benazir's widow, Asif Ali Zardari. Now, there are no parallels in any democracy of giving a political party on a will to an individual. 
And then from 2008 to 2013, Pakistan People's Party were ruling the country and the economic performance was terrible. There was again a balance of payments crisis, bombs went off everywhere, there was radicalization, there was ethnic violence, there was despair across the country, there was inflation. So I think the, the, the two other political parties, uh, they've seriously, uh, in terms of popularity, in terms of their vote bank, they've seriously gone down over the last decade. And that's where Imran, you know, Imran saw this as an opportunity. And, and if you see his rallies, if you see the, the kind of support he has, it's primarily not only because of his charisma, but also because of the blunders these other two political parties have made. The election last month proved to be a transformative moment in Pakistan's political history, as Imran Khan's PTI became the single largest party at the national level, both in terms of popular vote and seats. The losers immediately alleged vote rigging. We cannot ignore the fact that he has been incredibly popular among the youth of Pakistan and in a lot of rural areas where there's a conservative religious vote. So we need to give the people of Pakistan their due in the sense that, you know, they have given him a lot of votes and a lot of support. However, we can't ignore the fact also that there has been a media crackdown. So you've had journalists have been arrested, abducted if they have not towed the establishment line and have been seen to be too critical of the army or too favourable to Nawaz Sharif. You've had TV channels being taken off the air, such as Geo. And you've had some newspapers like the English language newspaper Dawn actually being its distribution being curtailed in certain aspects of the country. So there's been a real attempt to control the debate and to portray material much more favourable to Imran Khan. In addition to that, of course, you've had the trial and conviction of Nawaz Sharif and his daughter. And whilst a lot of people in Pakistan accept that there are questions to be answered with regards to the purchase of these flats in London that he's been convicted for, I think it would be right to say that the timing of this action has been extremely political. His conviction coming two weeks before the votes were due to be cast, for example. So there's been a lot of manipulation that's happened in this election, both before the election, but also during the election night itself, where polling agents were shut out of the polling station and weren't allowed to see the counts as they were being counted. The new Prime Minister has vowed to end corruption and raised hopes of a new kind of Pakistan, an Islamic state built along Scandinavian-style welfare lines. Will he be able to fulfil these promises? Right now, as we speak, the economy of Pakistan is in complete tatters. The inflation is mounting, the oil prices are painfully high, the rupee is weakening by the day. There's a huge fiscal deficit and current account deficit and foreign reserves are depleting and right now foreign reserves are are at a low of dollar nine to dollar ten billion which can pay for three to six months of imports so the the economic situation that imran faces is precarious once he assumes power his finance minister will have to rush to take the first flight to washington and apply for a new loan with the imf the americans are not keen on having IMF give Pakistan a loan because of Pakistan's closeness to China. So these are uh, some foreign policy issues that Imran has to grapple once he comes to power. And one more thing, once you are faced with a terrible macroeconomic crisis 
and you are faced with a situation when you have to rush to the IMF, how will you create space for resources to implement your massive reforms agenda? Because he's come into power after promising massive education and health reforms. He wants to turn Pakistan into a welfare state. He's been constantly telling Pakistanis that you will see a different Pakistan. You will see a new Pakistan. No political leader in the history of the country has governed the country the way I will govern it. So you know, these are massive promises. The question is, how will he manage to create resources to implement his, his economic reforms? Another big challenge that he's going to face is that Imran himself was quite a strong opposition force to Nawaz Sharif. Now that he is in power, the, the opposition members together, uh, they've all allied against him. They've all united against him. And they also have over 100 seats in the national parliament. The problem he's going to face now is that whenever he tries to table a reform bill, there will be serious criticism. And there's also disillusionment within his own party. Because to win the elections, he had to recruit electables, turncoats from other parties, and there were people within his party who had supported him in his years of obscurity. And now they feel that, you know, he's ditched them at the last moment. There are not only issues with the opposition, there are issues within the party, and then there are macroeconomic issues that he's going to grapple. So, so it's, it's a huge task in front of him. A lot of people are comparing him with other politicians such as Erdogan from Turkey, Duterte from the Philippines, Trump from America. He's very, very impulsive. He says what he thinks and he says it loudly. And whether or not that makes you a bad person to lead a country, I think, is is not something for an academic to judge. But I think that there are going to be real issues in terms of whether he's going to appreciate a lot of the nuances of the problems that Pakistan has. He's very much a populist. So he talks about, you know, knowing what the people of Pakistan want, as opposed to these elites who are completely disconnected from the rest of the population, despite the fact, of course, that he is fabulously wealthy and he comes from a very elite background himself. In terms of what he'll be like as prime minister, it's quite difficult to know. And the reason I say this is because he doesn't have any governing experience. So his party, the PTI, has run the provincial government in Khyber Pakhtunwa province over the last five years. But he wasn't chief minister. So he hasn't got the day-to-day -day governing experience, even at provincial level. So he's very much someone who's coming in, he's unknown, he's used to making decisions with regards to his political party and having them, you know, kind of implemented immediately. But of course, governing is going to provide him with a whole new set of challenges. Things aren't going to change that quickly. And there are going to be a lot of constraints within which he's going to have to work. <laughs> Pakistan politics blue-eyed boy, Imran Khan, bringing Pakistan the dream of a Naya Pakistan. Promising democracy and pitching himself as the country's first prime minister who will complete a full term. Part of a profile on Imran Khan on the news website India Today. What might he bring from his years as an international cricket star to the job of Pakistan's prime minister? Well, the first thing that he has as a huge advantage is his reputation. Pakistan had a cricket team almost as soon as it, as it became a nation. Of course, it was composed largely of former Indian cricketers after partition. 
And it's been the uh, means by which Pakistan has been known around the world, the accomplishments of its cricket team. So he had, in a sense, the greatest of bully pulpits in terms of making himself known to a wider public. He's also been regarded as sort of very much his own man. He's risen above the uh, reputation of Pakistan politics for corruption and of internecine rivalry. He's been thoroughly independent from the very beginning, sometimes worryingly independent. And he's stuck very firmly to his guns throughout that political career. He's never compromised at, uh, at any stage. He's never formed any of those toxic alliances for which Pakistan politics is is so ill-famed. And in a sense, he's almost been left as the last man standing, the last kind of credible political figure in his country. The cricket writer Gideon Haig. The other people you heard were Professor Catherine Adeney from Nottingham University, Professor Samina Yasmin from the University of Western Australia, and BJ Sadiq, the author of Let There Be Justice, The Political Journey of Imran Khan. Judy Rapley is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. (laughs) 